Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash support. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land, here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. What's up out there in Liberty Land, guys? We're back with a brand new edition of Electric Liberty Land here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. That, of course, means that this is Electric Liberty Land, episode 31. You can find that at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL31. And at the top of the show, I want to remind everybody real quickly about our sponsor, Martin Armory. They have a uh, fantastic selection of guns. They have the top 25 you, you want to buy. And guys, our promo deal with them is going to end as of August 4th. So if you want to go get some free shipping on a fantastic firearm, you go ahead, go to martinarmory.com, put in the code LIONS. Just like the Lions of Liberty, very easy. Put in a Lions before August 4th and you will get free shipping. So please be sure to do that. Also, we are doing a very special giveaway of Liberty Force number one. This is a comic that is written and illustrated by our good buddy Johnny Adams over at the Johnny Rocket Launchpad. So what we need you to do, we got some copies of this we're going to give away free. But you need to hightail it over to iTunes, put in a nice review, a nice five-star great review for us to get yourselves in the drawing. Again, you got to get that in by August 5th for it to count. So get on over there, get yourself in the drawing for Liberty Force number one, signed by the one and only Johnny Rocket over at the launch pad. And uh, you'll be supporting us, supporting Johnny, supporting Liberty in general. What more can you ask for? Now, as some of you might know, I went to Politicon again this year. I did go last year as well, although I was just kind of popping in and out. This year, I went for a little longer. I was able to go on the second day on Sunday and catch uh, quite a few panels, as well as speak to some people within the Liberty Movement, one of whom I'm going to cut to in just a moment. But overall impressions, uh, tons of people there. It was massive compared to the previous year. People lined up around the block for uh, for some of these panels. Panels and overall, people were getting along. I only saw one psychotic progressive run up to these two college age kids, one of whom had a Reagan Bush shirt on, and yell at him, and they made me sick. And then, uh, and then was just very pleased with herself, as though she'd made some some grand statement that changed the world. Keep on keeping, lady. I will say it's it may be very sad though that I didn't see any end the Fed shirts, not a one. So let's go to an interview I did on the floor of Politicon at the uh, the booth area with Bob Popper of Taliesin Nexus. Now, this is a essentially a uh, a group that was formed by a lot of filmmakers 
people that are professional within the entertainment industry here in Los Angeles and beyond, with the focus being on liberty and freedom-themed content. Felt like there wasn't enough of that that was being created, so they wanted to reach out to people that might have that drive, whether they are professionals and they work with, um, like for example, they have a Liberty Lab for Film, which I think they're now renaming, but they had a Liberty, Liberty Lab for Film, and this was targeted towards people that are writers, that are directors, uh, that are professionals with the industry or people that are aspiring to create this Liberty theme content. And they had collected treatments, essentially a one page breakdown of what you want to do in a film. And these are short films, but range from horror to comedy to drama, etc. Now, unfortunately, my microphone, first time I'd ever used it on the show for, and it was picking up between the background noise and my exuberant voice was a little bit too loud for the microphone to handle. So I took my part out. So I'm just mostly going to do Bob's here and I'll interject just to give you guys a little bit of uh, background for the questions that I'm asking him here. And you can visit them if you are curious. And I encourage you to visit them at talnexus.com, T-A-L-Nexus.com. So here, let's cut it through to Bob and you can hear what he has to say for himself. So uh, it's been a great couple days here at Politicon. Uh, we have been uh, having a stream of people come through. Some people are learning about us for the first time. And uh, some people are actually veterans of our program uh, or have seen some of our films that we've already put out there. Uh, and uh, people are, uh, first they want to box us in. Uh, it kind of happens first. They want to know, like, oh, what's your agenda? And when you say, actually, our agenda is to promote stories related to freedom and liberty, they kind of they're still looking for the catch and they still want to kind of tag you with a like a party or, or other and uh, and I'm always happy to disappoint them that our stories are related to uh, uh, bringing out uh, debate and reflection from audiences about um, about liberty and freedom as, as individuals or as a society. And I had followed up by asking Bob whether or not there was a specific person or type of person that had volunteered to to submit the treatments, whether that is a person of specific uh, age, a specific sex, a specific particularly political leaning. And here was his response. Um, I, I, I would not say that there's any one particular type of candidate that we see come through as an applicant for our programs. Um, uh, you know, and we, we boil down from north of 100 uh, applications uh, or story treatment ideas uh, down to six that uh, end up uh, uh, getting the grants to go forward as a story. And I would say that the, you know, we, we end up with a diversity um, more in the content uh, that will come out eventually. You know, it's a, a combination of dramas and comedies. And sometimes we delve into history uh, and we uh, sometimes delve into the future with some of our choices. So they're uh, really, we get excited about an idea and, uh, and not everybody who ends up uh, in the lab and getting uh, one of our spots is uh, easy to peg. I mean, they're really coming from all different perspectives, but they care about liberty and they have an interesting story that explores liberty and explores uh, our freedoms. And here's my last question that I asked Bob was a concept that I've been thinking about for a little while and harkens back to the episode I did about Rick and Morty, which of course is by Dan Harmon, who is a epically progressive individual, yet has created what I argue to be the most libertarian show maybe that's ever lived uh, or ever been created. And if you're not familiar with it, I will link to my breakdown of Rick and Morty in the show notes. But basically, they're 
the point I, I like to think about and the point I'm making to Bob and I wanted to see what his thoughts are is that there is a ton of content coming out wherein we look at it and we go, you know what? There's a lot of very strong Liberty themes in this movie or in this TV show. Yet you look at the people creating it and they are hyper progressive. So you stop and you go, do they know the message they're putting out? Or is it something where their, their values, I mean, in their mind, they think that they're supporting liberty by what they're actually doing in their lives, yet it's not coming through in their policies and in the way it actually is, is bearing out in reality. Yet the liberty concepts are still there. So that's what I threw to Bob and I wanted to see what his take was. And here we go. I think a lot of content creators care about liberty and are pro-liberty without necessarily realizing it. Um, and uh, I am slightly dating myself, but as a, a bookend to Rick and Morty, I think another um, touchstone in comedy is the, is the film Ghostbusters. If you like Ghostbusters, you are pro-entrepreneurship. You are um, pro-innovation. And uh, the, the bad guy, uh, primary bad guy in um, uh, the movie Ghostbusters is actually... Uh, Mr. Peck of the EPA, and he stifles innovation to the point of uh, creating danger in society. Um, so I think a lot of these concepts are actually in popular culture uh, without the creators sometimes knowing it, although um, uh, Ivan Reitman grew up in a communist country, so he may be, have, be conscious of that. Um, uh, but a lot of more modern creators are actually pro-liberty, interested in liberty in a compelling way as it relates to narrative, um, without realizing that they're creating that content. And, uh, and the more the merrier. I mean, if, if it gets people thinking about these issues and engaging with each other, then uh, we're excited as an organization. So there you go. Pretty interesting stuff. And this is, uh, you know, the Nexus has been something that I was told about by a couple of different people. My buddy Dan Mahoney, I'll give him a shout out. He had brought it up to me as well as one of our forum members, Adam Choit, who I know had actually sent in a, uh, a treatment for this. And, you know, they got a fairly large amount sent into them. So I recommend anybody who's looking to get into film or thinking about this. They not only have this competition, the Liberty Lab for Film, which will be retitled, uh, but they have other programs that are ongoing as well, looking to work with people in screenwriting in general, working in TV. Uh, they have a lot of ongoing programs. So check them out, guys, townnexus.com. So I want to talk about a few of the panels that I saw, and then I'll throw it to another interview that I did with a guy named Boomer Shannon, who is with the California Libertarian Party. Find out his reactions from the show floor and how it's been going. But so basically the way Politicon is organized, and, uh, and I'll tell you up front that I saw about four panels, including the Jenk Ugger uh, panel versus Ben Shapiro, and I think I said that pretty much correctly. He's got a he's got a tough name to pronounce. Wouldn't it be funny if that's the one name on this podcast I actually say right? But anyway, I saw Jenk versus Ben, and uh, and I will get into that towards the end of the show, as that was the last thing I saw, and I have the most copious amount of notes on. Um, but I did see some other panels. The first one I actually ended up catching was called What Now Republicans? And that had uh, people like uh, Tommy Lauren on it. It had Dennis Prager on it. It had uh, Dennis Steele on it, who I don't really enjoy. And uh, I don't enjoy David Frum, the other guy that was on it. Really, I don't even enjoy Tommy Lahren. She had <laughs> basically during this panel, you talk about people just rattling off. I don't know if she'd ever been in front of a live audience before. But my God, this girl, it was like the moment she got to speak, she was just kind of like, like, like she was just nervous to be there. And I think that might have been the case or maybe nervous to be among the people there that are on stage. I don't know. It was very confusing. But uh, I will say, so 
Dennis Prager was the best on that panel. And the focus of the panel was supposed to be, what's the Republican Party supposed to do next? So I wanted to hear it. I wanted to hear if anybody actually was going to speak in any way, shape or form to what libertarians would actually want to hear, saying that we need to rein in the warfare state, saying that we need to rein in the welfare state, saying that we needed to go out of our way to protect freedom of speech in this day and age, going out of our way to to protect uh, people's basic rights and end the drug war. So Unfortunately, we didn't really get into much of that, at least during during the part I saw. And uh, oh, this is what I started to say earlier. The way this that Politicon is set is all the panels are very staggered. So I got there about midday on Sunday, and there are three panels going on about at any time. So I had to pick and choose, and I tried to, to go to about half of each one so I could see the most amount of panels possible. So I got to see half of this panel. And meanwhile, what they got to, to talk about always comes back to Russia, even though this panel, they had an entire panel, which I'll talk about in a moment, dedicated to Russia and Trump. But as always, it gets drawn back into this. I remember one of the highlights of this little chat was that Dennis Prager had made a claim that the fascists of America was all on the left. I wrote that down because it was a great line. But then Dennis, uh, excuse me, David Frum who was George W. Bush's speechwriter, is a neocon through and through. David Frum was somehow the quote-unquote progressive voice on this panel. Uh, Even though he wasn't really progressive in any way, and he was really, you know, being a neocon, he's more, uh, (laughs) I'd say he's far more on the right than most, but somehow, the way it worked out, he he was expressing a lot more progressive values during this. And meanwhile, this is also the guy, David Frum coined Axis of Evil for George W. Bush. I just want to point that out. But at one point, David Frum was asked if he would refer to Dennis Prager uh, as a patriot or not, because Dennis Prager actually said that, you know, this rush, this uh, whole Russia stuff, why are we talking about it? Why do we continue to talk about it? And uh, Tommy Lahren or Tommy Lahren had said the same thing, like, this is a massive distraction. Americans don't have that big of an attention span to pay pay attention to all these different things, especially when CNN and MSNBC are pushing Russia down their throats when there's still no evidence. So at one point, the moderator broke in and he said, well, David, you know, is is Dennis and is Dennis and, uh, and Artomi, are they patriots if they won't say that Russia got involved in the election? And David Frum would not say that they were still patriots of the nation and again, I don't really give a goddamn if you say you're a patriot or not. It's your actions and, and the way you interpret uh, the Constitution that I care about. But David Frum wouldn't say they're patriots. And it just was one of the most ridiculous moments because, I mean, when, since when is this neocon going out of his way? And, and he's been a, an advocate of attacking Trump in any way, shape, or form. But since when is, is it? Okay, now to ally yourself with all the Democratic propaganda coming out against Trump just for the sake of doing it and buying into this myth to the point where you're saying that anybody who doesn't buy in to the Russia slash Trump narrative hates America or is not a patriot. It just is madness. It's madness. And then Michael Steele comes in and he's also puppeting that Russia did something to win this uh, win this election. And we can't ignore that. You know, Russia got involved and we have to, you know, we have to get in there and we have to punish them. I mean, that's again, the whole panel I was sitting there. That's what it revolved around. I wish it was something else I could talk about because I'm going to talk about as a perfect segue from Russia with Trump, which was the name of the Russia panel, which was supposed to have John McAfee on it. So 
I leave that panel, having experienced nothing but Russia talk uh, and, and a little giggle to myself at how ridiculous David Frum was. And I head over to From Russia with Trump, which had in it a uh, Ted Lieu, who was a Democratic senator from California, who's, uh, you know, pretends to be big on tech issues like uh, like freedom of, of speech on the Internet and that sort of thing. And but he's big on cybersecurity. It was supposed to have John McAfee, who unfortunately was not there because he had recently been attacked. And I still don't know enough details about that. I was hoping he would. Come out on stage like Willy Wonka with a cane and co- <laughs> collapse forward and then gotten up and be like, <laughs> and then smoked four cigarettes. That would have been fantastic to see. There was also a purported uh, international espionage slash uh, ISIS slash terrorism expert named Malcolm Nance, who I'm not familiar with. Perhaps some people are who had re- he had written some book, basically the definitive book on how Russia hacked the election and how he is colluded and how Russia is colluded with Trump. Despite the fact that the man has no background in cybersecurity, has no background in Russia in any way, shape or form, by the way, uh, something that. Representative Dana Rohrbacher, a famous man from the International Council on Foreign Relations, whatever he is on, he's on like four different councils in regarding Russia and overseeing Russia and Syria. Uh, and not my favorite man in the world, but still in this panel actually was the only voice of reason. But which Dana Rohrbacher had called him out on, just saying, well, what have you ever been to Russia? No. Do <laughs> you know anybody in the Russian? No. Um, so anyway, Malcolm Nance is on it. As I said, Dana Rohrbacher was on it. Uh, also, Anna Navarro was on it, who's a Hispanic conservative. And it was moderated by Dr. Vince Houghton, who actually did a great job. Uh, I mean, as far as fact-checking goes, he really did a fantastic uh, job with this because this was essentially a stacked deck. Rohrbacher was the only one who was not basically already ringing the bell that Trump and Russia had colluded and that Russia completely hacked our election and it was a done deal. And the crowd was possibly the stupidest crowd at all of Politicon. I mean, if you could have packed in all of CNN's core group, all of their focus group for all of their programming into one hall at one time, this was the hall. I mean, Morons, as far as the eye could see. I started, I got out of my seat. I started walking across their heads just to see if they would notice. Nobody noticed. They were too busy clapping and uh, and shouting collusion. So anyway, uh, during this panel, some of the here's some of the highlights that I jotted down. Now, first things first. Um, they keep saying, you know, Malcolm Nance. He made the statement, which a bunch of other people have made, too, in the intelligence community, saying that, you know what, if there's uh, there's not tons of evidence against Russia because it's intelligence, people. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's not public. That's his point. OK, great. So you're telling me that when you've got the deep state, which has been against Donald Trump from day one, from before day one, you got the deep state, which already was was spying on him, which is already working with the Obama administration to uh, to unmask these these reports, which has been leaking. There's been all these leaks from within the White House. Reese Priebus was dismissed ostensibly because he was a leaker. You know, all of these leaks coming out. You're telling me that they can't leak one single piece of concrete evidence. Okay. And you've got, and people like Ted Lou. So he says that. I'm like, are you kidding me? Then Ted Lou, or Lou, said that Trump is beholden to Russia, which of course got a, a big round of applause. And then he said that he was proud of the sanctions that they just pushed through on Iran and I think it was Syria and Russia. 
which to me just is so beyond frustrating because all you've got there. So, okay, so you're going to push through sanctions. Great. That's just going to piss everybody off. That's just going to hurt relations even more. It's going to hurt the Russian people. Again, it's not going to Putin's not getting hurt by that. The oligarchs that are in charge of Russia aren't getting aren't getting reamed by that. Neither are the people that are in charge of all their biggest uh, corporations that are tied in with the government. All you're hurting is people with sanctions. So what's the point? But no, let's go and push sanctions through on Russia and really piss them off. And again, all these people are clapping despite the fact that <laughs> Ted says they are against this is his exact words. We're against the Russian government. We're not against the Russian people. Well, Ted, then you shouldn't be sanctioning them, should you? Because that's who you're hurting with those sanctions. Just so stupid. So it's like based in no logic whatsoever. So Rohrbacher is the sole voice on stage that, that's pushing back, saying that the Russian people aren't our enemies. You know, that these people, they've, they basically are just beholden to the government. It's not the Russian people that are doing anything wrong to us, uh, pushing back against the sanctions concept. And that... That none of these people on stage, other than Rohrbacher, have had any interactions with Russia at all. And he asked every person on stage. They all had to sheepishly admit that they had not ever been to Russia, except, oh, Malcolm Nance liked to say that he had three kids that he adopted from Russia. It was like, oh, great job. How old were they? Oh, were they two? <laughs> I'm sure they could give you a lot of insight into what it's like to grow up in Russia, you idiot. So he pushes back and says, none of you have been to Russia, yet you all want to make policies on how to handle it, which is a very good point. Know thy enemy, if we even are to consider them enemies. And he cited the fact that there's this unrelenting hostility from Congress, even though, you know, the Congress had mocked the concept when Mitt Romney brought it up, that Obama mocked the concept of Russia being a threat. But now they're the biggest thing in the world. And another quote that I loved, that when I loved it when Trump said it, and I love it when Rohrbacher said it here, he said, you know, Putin's bad, but we have a lot of bad guys in America, too, which is an excellent point. And the crowd booed him, booed him for that. And then he also said that radical Islam is a bigger threat to us than Russia. And they booed him for that, too. The whole crowd of, uh, the whole crowd of CNNers booed the hell out of Rohrbacher for saying that ISIS ISIS people, the people that have been going across the Middle East, that have been beheading people, that have been murdering men and taking their children, stealing their wives and turning them to sex slaves, which, by the way, just Google ISIS Yazidi. You'll get plenty of that. Highly disturbing. And actually, one of my clients named, uh, well, they're Yahad and Unum. If you want to look up Yahad and Unum and Action Yazidi for a, uh, a horrific amount of evidence. But they're going and documenting this. Women turned into sex slaves. Men murdered en masse, burned alive, stoned, beheaded, children taken and turned into child soldiers. But he gets booed by saying that ISIS and radical Islam are a bigger threat to us than Russia. Is there even a debate? Uh, what what has Russia done to me lately? What has Russia done to me, for that matter, since ever, ever? What has Russia done to me? They were our ally. The last time I checked, the last time any military uh, in interactions went in place where Russia and the U.S. were on a battlefield. Well, actually, okay, Afghanistan. Let's say that. But that was more of a, that was a proxy war anyway. So we're not even directly fighting Russia in that circumstance. So again, what has Russia done to me? Because it looks like ISIS is doing a lot more to American soldiers from where I'm at. And it looks like Russia, and there's another thing that Rohrbacher pointed out, it looks like Russia is helping to fight that threat. 
I mean, he made this point that fighting the actual enemy with Russia is smarter than making up reasons that they're our enemy. And the crowd just booed him and booed him and booed him. They applauded Anna Navarro, though, this other dummy, because she said she was proud that she hadn't visited Russia to spend money there because <laughs> it wasn't uh, democratic, <laughs> which, you know, that's that's a, a fine and good point, I guess. But, uh, I mean, it's just it's not a point that counteracts in any way, shape or form the uh, the points that Rohrbacher had made that none of you have been to Russia, yet you're forcing this this narrative. And the moderator made a very good point to Houghton. He said that China hacked into a government entity, stole millions of people's information, including information on CIA agents, on informants, uh, everything else, social security numbers, all of this stuff. And it was no big deal. Basically, just said cyber intelligence and cyber hacking, that's just part of everyday life now. It goes on 24-7. And I'm thinking in my head, I wish he had brought this up, and maybe he did later, because, again, I only got to stay for about half this panel. But I wish he had brought up the fact that Israel, the country that everybody likes to uh, to give handy J's to as our best friend, with our Stand with Rand Paul Stand with Israel Act and this Anti-Israel Boycott Act that's in there, or the uh, Israel Anti-Boycott Act, everybody likes to give uh, Israel the old handy J's. But at the same time, what came back from the most recent surveillance reports saying, what's our biggest cyber threat? Israel! Israel was! So who are we kidding here? Nothing was done when China hacked us. We didn't pretend that they hacked our election. We didn't sanction China because China is a major trade partner. But God, you know, when it's politically convenient to slander Russia, let's go ahead and do that. Because you know what? Because why not? Because screw Trump. Let's try to take him out. It's just so crazy. And, you know, this guy, Malcolm Nance, comes back and he says, oh, well, you know what? This was weaponized. This information was weaponized to to alter the election. I'm sorry. Hillary Clinton pulled some shady shit and backstabbed Bernie Sanders, right? So really, I'm sorry. At the end of the day, if this information was leaked, it still comes back around to Hillary Clinton being shady as hell, to Hillary Clinton being involved with shady dealings while she was Secretary of State and the Clinton Foundation, where there, by the way, she should be prosecuted and in jail right now, right now, in jail. She should be happy as hell that she wasn't elected president where people could really go after and they would have now and put her in jail. Give me a break. Weaponized. That's like, and again, this is like if I send an email to a coworker uh, telling that coworker that I want him to die in a, in a fiery crash and then he forwards it to my boss or forwards it to somebody else and then I get a comeuppance because of that. That's That's being weaponized? No. I'd sent the first email. I did the first wrong. If that got out, well, maybe you shouldn't have done it in the first place. Whoops. Maybe your email server should have been secure. <laughs> Whoops. Just madness. All right. Let's, uh, let me finish this up and just say that the phrase of the day, again, this, this Malcolm Nance guy, just to wrap this panel up, the phrase of the day, he said that the Russia collusion and the uh, and that Russia provided emails to WikiLeaks and that they even though they didn't hack the election because everybody acknowledged that they did not hack in or change any votes whatsoever in the election but they acknowledged that 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 despite that never happened that they quote unquote hacked the American mindset about Hillary Clinton if there's ever any bigger BS phrase I've ever heard in my life that, to say that people made their minds up based upon evidence that somebody didn't like. It's hacked a mindset. 
All right. Tell you what, guys, I'm going to throw it to a commercial and I will be right back. I firmly believe one of the most important things you can do to protect yourself and your loved ones is to own a firearm. But for a lot of people, buying a gun can be an overwhelming process. There are just so many options and not everyone feels comfortable walking into a gun store. Well, our friends at martinarmory.com are doing their part to change that. Martin Armory was founded with a simple goal to make buying a gun simple and affordable. Instead of carrying thousands of different guns, martinarmory.com only carries 25. This allows them to focus on providing the most popular guns on the market at insanely cheap prices. And now for a limited time, their prices are even more insane as martinarmory.com is offering Lions of Liberty listeners free shipping. Simply go to martinarmory.com, pick an awesome gun, and enter the promo code LIONS. Again, that's martinarmory.com. The promo code is LIONS. Right. Lions by August 4th, guys. That's the last chance you get to have free shipping on us. So I want to throw it to an interview I did on the floor again here. And again, I've cut myself out because it's just a little bit too loud, a little bit too crackly using this mic for the first time. So this guy named Boomer Shannon, who's with the California Libertarian Party. And I asked him a little bit about how the reaction was on the show floor, uh, what they've been doing to interact with people and how that's been going, especially in a super liberal environment like Los Angeles. Uh, my name is Boomer Shannon. I like to think of myself as an activist extraordinaire. Um, I serve on the Executive Committee of the Libertarian Party of California. I'm also the chairman of the Libertarian Party of San Bernardino. Uh, but I'm active all over Southern California. I, I have, I have uh, activists in Riverside, Los Angeles, Orange, San Diego, all over the place. They're really great folks. Uh, well, we have been incredibly successful with our signups. One of the things that the, the Alive Free Happy group, which is another organization I'm involved in, they, they train activists. And one of the things that we focus on is, is talking about positive politics first, right? We look to, to agree with people, and then we don't disagree with them. We, we try to find you know, ways of talking about it without being jerks. So um, even in a very liberal-oriented uh, event like Politicon, we have a lot of success talking about ending the drug war, talking about immigration, talking about anti-war, um, things that the, the true liberals and, and a lot of Democrats really desire to have but don't have representation for. Even even the liberals here, I mean, we have, California liberals are different than the rest of the country. They are kind of conservative in a lot of ways, right? You know, so we see a lot of success, and as you see on our board, we have a lot of people scoring libertarian this weekend. Discussing discussing politics with progressive is a lot about eschewing fear, right? You need you need to address those fears. You don't get to dance around them, right? You know, one of the things with libertarians, you know, we tend to be a little bit on the autistic scale, a little less empathic than we should be when it comes to reaching out to people, especially doing outreach. And in a place like this, we want to talk about things, how they affect people, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be about policy, but what's interesting is that when you break the, the test down to questions about policy, people naturally score libertarian, right? They're, they, are, they are disillusioned by this left-right poll, and when they realize there's another third choice, we are the ones that want to be offering there. We're smiling faces, welcoming them, making awesome phone calls, and, and extending our, our, our arms to the people that are really in dire need. So interesting to hear how people reacted to the libertarians on the floor. Now, there were a number of different crazy boos that were there. Uh, like, there was the the Pussy Hat Project or the Pink Hat Project. There was, of course, the Women's March. And don't get me wrong, I strongly debated going over and just starting some shit with those people just to make them sound dumb on the podcast. But then I thought to myself, number one, I don't have the time. To be perfectly honest, because of the way these panels were all stacked, uh, I just didn't have the way to, to really hang around too long. But number two, it's kind of like picking on the dumbest kid on the playground, you know, because the, the people at these booths weren't the people manning or in charge of any of the actual events or movements. So, you know, I tried to find people that I could talk to that were at uh, at least people of authority. 
Uh, thank goodness, you know, Bob Popper was actually somebody within the program that could speak authoritatively on what's going on, what they're trying to accomplish, the goals of the organization, etc. Same thing with Boomer Shannon. He's high enough up, he can speak about it. And, uh, and obviously, I'm not looking to make fun of those people. But if I were to engage with the uh, the P-Hat Project or the Pink-Hat Project or the Women's March, I would want to engage with somebody that would be able to defend their organization from an authoritative point of view and then be taken down, which is much more fulfilling than just beating up somebody who volunteered to give out buttons for a day and doesn't know that they're walking into a meat thresher or a wheat thresher. Meat thresher? They probably have those too. If not, somebody call me. We got a, we got a billion idea here. Come thresh your meat instead of your weed with me, Brian McWilliams, an investor to be named later. Okay, let's move on here to uh, the last panel I attended before the debate. This is Roger Stone. Not even a panel, I should say. It was like a <laughs> an evening with Roger Stone, who, by the way, you could hear Roger. He was on two different Lions of Liberty podcast episodes. He was on recently discussing Trump uh, with Mark and also was the 11th guest on the show way back when. If you want to delve into the dark ages and hear... Uh, Hear Mark back before his voice dropped. You can check that out. Um, but Roger did hold a, a little kind of a town hall thing. He did a Q&A at the very end, which I really wanted to stand around and ask a question for. But again, I did not have time because of the staggering of these events. But I'll give you some highlights from his talk. Basically, Roger went in saying that no one party can mess the country up this badly. Um, just talking about how... We didn't get here just because of Obama. We didn't get here just because of Trump recently or uh, or other things. We, you know, and he's right. The two parties do have to work together, which is why the two party system is is such a horrible thing. And Roger did go into the fact that he says that there should be four or five viable parties. Uh, it's sad and tragic that we don't because there's no checks. It's either one or the other, and these parties are basically existing just to continue to exist. They like to bicker between themselves and push to see who gets the bigger piece of meat at the dinner table. But the point is, those are the people eating the meat. None of the rest of us get a bite. Or if we do, we get a tiny nibble. Um, he also went on to talk about Hillary Clinton a bit. Uh, he clearly feels that the uh, the Clintons, she, you know, she wrote her own ticket to hell. Uh, the media was rigged for her. The new media was rigged for her. And that she's still lost because she's just a, an insanely unlikable person, which I think we can all agree with. And, of course, you know, the he doesn't believe that Trump and Russia colluded in any way, shape, or form. And that, uh, you know, her emails, she dug her own grave. Uh, he also revealed a very interesting fun fact. He's, he claims that his inside sources say Justice Kennedy will resign within the next couple of weeks. So... Look at your watches, folks. If he, if he does resign within the next couple of weeks, let's say let's say August 15th, then, hey, maybe I broke some news on this show for once. But Justice Kennedy on the way out. Uh, Roger Stone did, did uh, Reese kind of double down on his libertarian standing, by the way. Um, you know, he reinforced his favor for cuts in regulation, cuts in taxation, lower corporate taxes um, to make moves, you know, to basically just make U.S. more attractive for businesses to stay here, to come here, and also um, really wanted to... <laughs> this is kind of a funny thing that he went into, but I don't know why he did this, but he was talking about Nixon and... Uh, I don't know how a libertarian can really be a big fan of Nixon, which Roger Stone, oddly enough, is. <laughs> but despite being a, a libertarian or so, he says. But 
he went into this whole diatribe comparing, basically he was slandering Obama, not slandering, say rightly putting Obama in his place, saying that, you know, he's no icon and he should not be treated as such. Sure, he was iconic in the way that he was the first black president, but he's not a guy that we should look upon if you remove that from him. He's not somebody that deserves adoration of the masses in any way, shape or form. And he pointed out that really... If you look at Nixon, Nixon was as progressive or more in many ways than uh, Obama. And he referred to, you know, the overarching spying that went on uh, with the NSA. He slammed the uh, the FISA court uh, usage that Obama went through, especially in unmasking uh, Trump, but also just using FISA to go after everybody and anybody with these with these organizations, opening up anybody to being investigated and without any knowledge or any oversight because it's a secret government court. Now, granted, that was put in place by G.W. Bush, so he's responsible for the original institution being placed, but Obama was one that never hesitated to take advantage of it. But he then went on to point out that Nixon, and I and I agree with him on, on these points, that Nixon was uh, very progressive in ending the war in Vietnam, uh, opening up the uh, the communications with China, getting that started on free markets in that way. He appointed more blacks to government offices than almost anyone in uh, in presidential history, I guess. However, he also put affirmative action into place, which I guess if you're a progressive is a great thing. But from my standpoint, I think affirmative action has now been a, a source of uh, abuse within the system that's now being effectively used as a, uh, a racist tool against white people and, and other minorities that don't fall within the specific affirmative action guidelines. So boo on that. And of course, also, Stone neglects to mention that President Nixon started the war on drugs. I mean, if there's anything you can cite that's ruined more people's lives than the war on drugs, more American lives, I should say, uh, because God knows our wars overseas have ruined quite a few lives, millions and millions of lives. But the war on drugs, how can you support a man who started this war on drugs, which has cost us at this point, probably what, trillions of dollars, put generations of people into prison, given us the largest police uh, or the largest prison population in the modern world? I mean, that's crazy. And, and he does admit that it's an idiotic failure. So he <laughs> he likes Nixon, but neglects to mention that he did start the war on drugs. This came up later, by the way, that he admits that the war on drugs is a failure. Uh, he did go on to slam uh, Kelly on the war on drugs and his, uh, excuse me, new uh, White House chief of staff, John Kelly, on his affirmation for the war on drugs and its effectiveness, which is, of course, based on nothing. No statistic can ever point you to the fact that that's doing anything but but failing in every way, shape, or form. Uh, he also talked about the fact that Rand Paul's healthcare system was the best, in his opinion, as a starting point. And insofar as uh, his libertarian status, he continued to back that up during the Q&A, reasserting that he is a libertarian, that he pulled out of the GOP when he started to suspect the Republican Party was not upholding the principles of freedom and liberty, and um, really slammed into how many wars we've been getting into, uh, said that that's got to stop the the warmongering and the uh, empire building across the country. And then he also brought up the fact that the debates are a huge issue to him at this point, citing that you basically have the two parties who run the presidential debate committee. And of course, it's run by the Democrats and the Republicans. I'm sure all of you know that. And they don't let anybody in. They don't want to let in. So it's a ridiculously rigged system that basically no one can win unless you are part of the two chosen elites. And since they make all the rules, there's no way anybody's ever going to crack that. Because as you saw with Gary Johnson, they simply change what you need to get in to make sure that you can't.
So that was a quick uh, rundown of Roger Stone. Now we'll get to the main event here. And again, guys, I'm trying to go through this quickly. I'm like looking at my notes from these uh, these events. So regarding uh, Cenk and Shapiro, let me say first things first, this was a massive, massive draw. I mean, there were lines just wrapped around the entire center, out the door. They actually had to move auditoriums to facilitate the number of people that were that were lining up to see this thing. And... I myself, I went in, so I got my press pass because I was there for Lions of Liberty. And uh, unfortunately, we've achieved the status, thanks to all of you listeners, where I can actually get press passes to things. So I was there. I got to skip the line. But even by the time I got in there, the place is filled to the gills. I mean, it's just packed. So I'm like, okay, I'll go upstairs to the balcony. Nothing, no ropes there. There's a there's a, an usher right there. Let's me go right by up to the balcony. Great. I go take a seat, front row. It's like me and one other woman, front row, center at the balcony, sitting there chilling. About one minute before this thing's actually supposed to start, another, a different usher comes up to me and it's like, oh, you know what? The section's closed. You got to move. And I'm like, fuck off. You know, I'm, <laughs> give me a break. Number one, I'm, in my, I'm press covering this. So just let me sit here and, uh, and I'm not bothering anybody. She's like, no, you got to move. I'm like, oh, you got to be effing kidding me. So I'm like, fine, fine. All right, get up. Go downstairs. I didn't even think I'm going to get a seat at this point. Finally get a seat in the back. And then they announced that they're going to hold the start of the debate. So what can happen? So they can fill in the balcony. So I was moved out of my front row, beautiful balcony seat right in the center of the auditorium where I could see everything and hear everything just perfectly to a crummy seat so that they can later fill it in. That is called the height of idiocy. So screw you, Pasadena Conference Center or Convention Center. And uh, and I'm really pissed off at Politicon for not telling these people that they need to organize their shit better. Okay, so let's get into it. First things first, um, I will say that the crowd, I thought it was going to be much more pro-Jenk uh, than it was. That, I mean, really, when they introduced Shapiro and uh, and Jenk, the crowd went absolutely wild for Shapiro. It had to be at least four to one in his favor, easily four to one. And uh, that just knocked me on my ass. I, you know, this is, this is Pasadena. It's outside LA. I don't know where these people came from. I guess some of them flew in, some of them drove in from colleges. Maybe there's a lot of young Republicans there, but they came out and force. And primarily they talked a lot about healthcare. So they got right into it. You know, they tried to be, Tried to start off very, uh, very civilly, and uh, they came out. Basically, Shapiro spoke first, just coming out and saying that he was upset with the Republican Party for not doing a full repeal. Um, and then they went into a little bit more of the nitty gritty of healthcare. Basically, Shapiro's saying there's three things that you, uh, there's three things you can, you want in healthcare, but you can't get all three. It can either be universal, it can be affordable, or it can have high quality. And that we need to get rid of trying to make it all three at once with Obamacare, which kind of does all three in a way, in a terrible, terrible fashion. But we need to get rid of this burden that's placed upon people wherein they're forced into a system that has these people that are forcing skyrocketing premiums because of their either exceptionally expensive diseases or their pre-existing conditions, and then expect somehow for the supply of medical care, for the affordability of medical care, and for the quality of medical care to, grow, to uh, go up. Now, Jenk comes back and he replies that 
the Democrats should be proud. You know, this is a sarcastic statement, but saying, oh, well, you know, the Democrats should be real proud of killing a bill, i.e. the uh, replacement for the ACA put forth by Paul Ryan and his other cronies with 17 cent, 17% support. So good point. Funny. All right. But he thinks that Obamacare isn't enough because, of course, he does, because all progressives think that we need universal health care. So instead, he says that he wants Medicare for all. And he says that it's polling at 71 percent. Medicare polls at 71 percent, to which I say, OK, so what? <laughs> if you go up to somebody and you say, you know what, you want some some free money, I'm sure that polls Close or at uh, 99%, but some people probably are like, well, I don't know. Is that a good thing? Where's the money coming from? Same thing with Medicare. If you go up to some people and you go, hey, do you want free Medicare coverage for all? 71% of people that don't know better are probably going to say, oh, yeah, sure. That sounds fantastic. So, again, a kind of a stupid point. Um, but he thinks that Medicare gives good coverage and covers all three of the qualities that Shapiro mentioned, universal, affordable, and quality. Now, that, of course, is untrue. Anybody who knows anything about the system knows that a lot of people are, in fact, left out in the cold. A lot of people have waiting because rationing is a de facto point of the system. You can't just shove everybody into a medical system and then expect the specialist to be like, okay, yeah, no problem. What do you have? Cancer? Okay, yeah, no problem. And again, as I cited in another report, and this comes up later in the debate, so maybe I'm I'm blowing my load a little earlier, but uh, the cancer survival rates in the U.S. are some of the highest in the world. Because we're not forced into a universal system like the UK, which has some of the most terrible cancer survivor rates in the world, or at least the westernized slash modern world. Okay, getting back into it. Um, So Shapiro comes back, says, okay, so you're saying that Medicare is affordable. That's fine. Is it affordable to the state, though? No. And he uses the very recent example of California turning down, even progressive, as he phrased it, nutty California, turning down health care because it is completely unaffordable. It would have literally doubled California's annual budget overnight. There was no feasible way to make it happen. So even in California, and I was terrified it was going to pass, even in California, they said, no, we got to kill it. There's no way. And he's right. So Shapiro goes on to say health care isn't a right. And saying that it is doesn't make healthcare available or feasible. Um, you know, he's saying the market system is the only way. Government involvement will only decentivize doctors to become doctors because basically, just because you make it a right, so everybody now can take take this good or service from somebody else. Essentially, what he's saying by giving make, making it a quote unquote right. This is an interesting point. Now gives the government. The ability to say, okay, well, it's everybody's right. So now we've got to take it equally from everybody. You've got to, you've got uh, something that, that he has a right to have. So we're going to take it away from you, which is an accurate point. And he makes a, another point saying that his wife's a doctor, in which case she could be forced into accepting service or, or being forced into caring for people at below her wages or forced to do something for uh, for a subpar. And this would not, in turn, encourage more people to want to become doctors, which I agree with wholeheartedly. Cenk, of course, disagrees with that. He also, Cenk disagrees and says the taxes aren't stealing, which, <laughs> as we know, is the most anti-libertarian statement you could ever make. But uh, he then goes on to say that the Republicans are somehow confused about what insurance is. And this statement really got under my skin. So he's he's trying to respond to Shapiro's uh, assertment. And he's saying that, well, you don't understand that uh, what insurance is, is that the healthy subsidize the sick. And of course, all the progressives of the crowd are like, oh, yeah, 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 that's what, that is what insurance is. 
Now, of course, that is what insurance is, yes. But the problem occurs when you have insurance, which is based upon a risk assessment, and then you force everybody into the same pool. So the concept of insurance being that it covers you for when you get sick gets thrown out the window because you're allowing everybody in who's already sick. So you're not subsidizing. The, the sick people aren't paying anything into the system. So that's turning the entire concept of insurance upside down. Now, he doesn't go into any of the details, basically acknowledging the fact that it's not insurance anymore if you're creating this model where everybody has it at the same rate at the same time all the time. But the people, that didn't stop all these people from laughing and, and clapping like idiots anyway, because they don't even know what they're applauding for. I mean, they're applauding this concept. Meanwhile, Jenk then pivots away from it after defining what insurance is and thinking that's some great point. He then pivots away and says he wants to get rid of insurance companies in light of doing Medicare and universal health care. So why bring it up? I, 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 it was a really confusing tactic. I think, and I, this is, this is the kind of point in the, in the debate where we're getting, this is probably about 20 minutes in. And again, I'm just summing up some of the key points here, but this is the point in the debate where it starts to really break down for, uh, for Jenk. Um, you know, Shapiro brings up, he goes, okay, so fine. You want to get rid of, uh, you want to get rid of the insurance companies. You want to raise tax rates. He goes, okay, so how are you going to pay for all this? If you want to get rid of insurance companies, if you want to, if you want to make this a socialized healthcare, how are you going to pay for it? What's your ideal tax rate? And then what's your ideal level of care? Because in this system, you always end up with marketing or rationing, as I'd mentioned earlier. And as I decided talking about the UK, you end up with rationing where, and if you get sick, you could go to the doctor if you have the sniffles, but you can't go to the doctor if you need to see a specialist or become something more severe because they de facto have to ration because everybody has access to the, all these services at all time. There's no market at work where people who are actually sick can pay more to skip ahead in the queue to see somebody. So Jenks says, well, you know, during the 50s and 60s, the highest tax rate was 70 to 91%. And, you know, that was a time of, of great growth. And uh, people say that was some of the, the greatest times uh, in, in America. And then he says, you know, if taxes are $800 for Medicare, but you save $1,000, then uh, isn't that great? And everybody applauds because, again, they don't really understand the, econ the economics behind it. And then he cites Sweden, which I, I thought was funny. And I was a little disappointed Shapiro didn't respond to this, but he cites Sweden as an example. And, uh, and I couldn't help but laugh because Sweden actually is going through a tough time with its healthcare system and to the point where people who have any amount of money are actually paying for private insurance so that they don't have to use the public healthcare system, which I guess in the end achieves the result you want in a roundabout way because you, uh, the poor are still getting their care and people that can afford to do so are still getting their own private care, but going around the system and not having to wait in the queue. But those people that can afford it are hyper rich because otherwise you're getting taxed at an incredibly high rate and also getting to, uh, to pay for your own insurance. Now then Shaft comes back though. And he says, okay, fine. So you're saying that, that all these taxes, and I'm going to combine two different, two different junctures of Shapiro, or, uh, Shapiro responses here. So he responds, number one response is to this, this tax rate of 91%, basically pointing out that this was at a post-war period where all of the world's economies had been destroyed by war, except America's, because we never got bombed into oblivion. So, you know, we've got high tax rates, but we also have a economy that is working at its highest level ever, where everybody has optimal maximum employment and wages can go up because everybody's working around the clock because the economy is booming to supply the rest of the world with product. Then he also goes on to make a, an interesting point saying that, you know what? Okay. So you want, you're saying that 
that you want to tax people, you know, 70 to 90%. Okay, fine. And you say that th- somehow this will afford to pay for Medicare and Medicaid. But as of right now, Medicare and Medicaid already eat 66% of the budget up. So if you're going to add all of these people into the system, how in the world are you possibly going to pay for that on top? And remember, America's already got all of these trillions and trillions of dollars of debt in, in general. So if we're adding in another 200 million people into Medicaid and Medicare, there's no possible way we're going to pay for it. So Jenk uh, starts to backtrack here. And this is, a this is a, again, the start of the end because Shapiro's sensing that Jenk is weak on actual facts, actual statistics. He hasn't thought this through as well. And Shapiro, by the way, during this whole thing, I mean, it, it was a, I will say it was a massacre from the start, but Jenk at least was able to stay and hold his ground a little bit in the beginning. But when he starts to really break him down hard, I mean, Shapiro's shooting fast. And if you see the video, which I've linked to in the show notes, again, lionsofliberty.com, ELL31. But if you see the video in the show notes, you'll just see he's rapid fire, stat, 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 stat. Here's a point, here's a point, here's a point. I mean, hammering away at him. So Jenk starts to back down. Uh, he's, you know, he admits that 50s and 60s were a different time, but he said that, well, you know, the 90% tax rate didn't slow this in, and I equated this to, uh, didn't slow it down. And I equated this to Sweden where in a way Sweden was, had this booming market economy and they were uh, rocking and rolling. And then people had all this money and they said, okay, well now we're going to put all these socialist policies into place. And then things started to break down and get to where they are now, where they have an incredibly high tax rate and people's wealth has dropped precipitously. And I think this is a similar thing where Sink and Jenker and, and people like him look to this high tax rate in the 50s and 60s. They go, look at all that. We were so great then. And then you get all these policies put into place, people drawing back and becoming more socialist and people's individual wealth goes down, et cetera. I know it's not a direct comparison, but give me a break. I'm spitballing here. <laughs> I'm reading my notes. It's funny. You know what's tough? Trying to read notes that I was taking during this event and talk in real time while coming up with other things to add to the conversation. <laughs> the conversation with myself. It's really difficult, people. I'm not going to lie. It is really difficult. Okay, one more thing on this. So then Shapiro does respond to this uh, 70 to 90% tax rate as well towards the end and calls Jenk out basically saying, okay, well, if you're saying that with a 90% tax rate, everything was growth and the economy was booming, then why shouldn't we just tax everybody 90 to 100% all the time and the economy will just keep growing, growing and we'll all be taken care of forever? And Jake, of course, has to admit that this is an idiotic idea, that he'd never support it. And he goes, well, you know, it's uh, it's different times. You know, we can't. Of course, I'm not saying that in which the crowd gave him a lot of uh, a lot of jazz for a lot of, you know. And also Shapiro pointed out that there were the economic boom has continued because it's been fueled by tax cuts. We've been able to continue to to fuel growth by giving people more of their money back and kind of cutting back in these programs. And Senk, uh, or Jenk, excuse me, I always want to say Senk. Jenk tries to rile the crowd to his side by bashing corporate greed at this point. And again, this is where he starts to fall into these liberal platitudes to try to get people to, to clap for him. So he co- tries to blame corporate greed for a lot of America's ills, again, tying to the insurance companies and, and uh, money in politics. And then he says, well, you know what? We can't trust corporations to do the right thing. I mean, hey, they're out to make profit. I'm not saying they're evil, but come on. And that's like, are you kidding, man? Look at the government. Look at the atrocities the government has committed in the name of freedom and prosperity or in the name of protecting the rights. I mean, atrocious acts that had no basis in reality, like the Iraq war. I mean, bombing, murdering people across these torturing people. 
taking people out of their homes in the middle of the night and holding them, indefinitely holding them, getting rid of habeas corpus. This is what the government's been doing. In addition to stealing money from us forever, in addition to jailing us for daring to smoke a, a plant or put something in our bodies that wasn't sanctioned. And you're telling me that governments is a government is less evil and less corrupt than a company that has one motive and that motive is profit. And then it's accountable to shareholders, directly accountable to shareholders, directly accountable to market conditions, directly combating with innovation. Then you've got the government, this monolith that has not to combat with anything that just sits there. It sits there to, to keep itself in power, to grow. It's like the blob. You prefer that over the free market where you actually have a choice? I mean, it's just madness to think about. These people, their blind trust in government is so absolutely sickening. Uh, and, and again, in light of looking at all of the evidence of the past hundred years and everything that's been, that's been happening since the government got these powers. I mean, God, look at the spying scandal I brought up earlier. Did you forget about that, Jenky? Pathetic. And Shapiro uses Jenk's own company to illustrate the corporations aren't evil. They're just trying to make money. They're just people trying to live, trying to grow. You know, Jenk's got 80 people employed. He was like, how, how are you doing? You're an LLC. You're a corporation. You're not getting, you know, he didn't make this point, but, you know, Jenk's not paying the taxes he's supposed to pay, just like Matt Damon doesn't pay the taxes he's supposed to pay. Or any of these, any of these giant, uh, giant Richies that like to talk about how everybody should do things a certain way. They've all got LLCs that the checks go to. It's like, you're just, you're so full of shit, man. So again, Jenk's starting to struggle here, especially with the tax questions. He starts to backtrack hard. And then when the crowd sees that he's struggling and calls him out on his, his, uh, blustering and not knowing exactly what to say. Like, for example, when he got, when, uh, Shapiro made the statement about 100% tax rate, wouldn't that just mean that everybody could, uh, could do great forever because the economy would continue to grow? That's when Jenk was like, well, no, I mean, hey, I didn't say that. You're making a straw man. Everyone went, ah, I don't know about that. And then he goes, uh, hey, guys, you know, hey, hey, try to follow along, huh? You know, starts making fun of the crowd. And then, and I believe this was right after Shapiro had really been hitting on his own, his own company and his own uh, corporation and taxes. Jenk was trying to make an argument that the people in the crowd didn't understand that the redistribution of wealth was a good thing, trying to defend high taxes, and that somehow this is a this is something that helps everybody. He goes, don't you understand? You know, you circulate the wealth around. Oh, that's good for everybody. And again, it, despite the fact that we all know that this hasn't worked, despite the fact that America spends more money now on the welfare state than it ever has, and the poverty rates have stayed the exact same they always have been, except we now have the exact uh, exact same percentage of poverty rate, but vastly more people are on the welfare. So his idea doesn't work. But anyway, he says this, redistribution of wealth, he gets booed. And then he calls the audience uneducated because they didn't agree with him. I mean, is there anything more liberal and progressive than that? And I knew this was going to happen. I just, I, I knew it from the very start. He didn't say the key phrase I thought he would, which was, don't you care to Shapiro about the healthcare thing? I thought he'd break that at, do you want people to die? But instead he went with the old, you guys aren't educated enough to understand what I'm saying. Meanwhile, from what I was listening to the crowd, the crowd understood a lot more than he did. And then, by the way, 
he pulled out the old who will build the roads. Yes, he actually dropped the who will build the roads argument in there, which was hilarious. So they then get into a little bit of Glass-Steagall. Shapiro brings up how Glass-Steagall and the whole 2008 crash was actually caused and precipitated by government, which I did an entire podcast talking about, uh, breaking it down, the Dodd-Frank decision, and how government essentially pushed the subprime loans, then they pushed bundling them together and selling them off to the banks, and then they assured the banks that they would back up the loans so they couldn't lose any money, basically socializing it when it all went to shit. And Shapiro, to his credit, did bring that up. And shockingly enough, the old guy sitting next to me, he's probably about 70, knew exactly what was going on. And I was very, very surprised and very, very impressed. So Jenk then is just making bad statements, bad metaphors, bad allegories. He doesn't know what to do. I mean, he is literally reeling. So then he starts to rail against big government and invading Iraq, saying Republicans love big government because they want to be inside your uterus, which, of course, again, pandering, and Iraq. Now, while I agree with him wholeheartedly on the war state and Iraq, this is the worst of talking about liberals, talking points and pandering just to get applause, to try to give himself some sort of pause to think and gather his mind together because he's getting smashed so hard. Now, Schaaf, of course, said, well, I want a low budget, not to say he didn't never stood up against the Iraq war because, you know, again, he was a guy that supported it. Uh, I'm not saying I'm the biggest Shapiro fan, but in this case, clearly, there was a side to be on, and uh, and I was on Team Shapiro. Now then, I will wrap this up by just saying Shapiro kind of wrapped up by taking a crack at the Democratic Party, being stupid for losing to Trump. He's pointing out that the left is about taping together a bunch of identity politics into a coalition and feels like they have to run a minority or run a woman uh, in order to get these votes. Instead, they should just run on the true goals of what they're about. Big Big government. Healthcare, regulations on markets and small business, uh, a mixed economy. Just saying, you know what? Stop, stop beating around the bush and just own it. If you're gonna, if you're gonna do it, stop pretending. And then Jake came back saying, "Well, small government makes no sense. The Iraq War costs one trillion, but we can't pay for healthcare." And then he was saying that every person could go to college in America. Now, granted, that I'm sure means community college. But everyone could go to college for the cost of the Iraq war, which, as we know, might be true at one point in time. But as we also seen from straight stats, people, the more the government gets involved with providing health care or providing uh, education, more specifically education, you see them directly involved, providing more grants, providing more money for education as a direct result you can see the cost of education goes up every single time. They adjust it, they adjust it accordingly to make it more expensive. They take government money and they keep getting paid even more money from the private individuals. It happens every, every time. That's what happens in a mixed economy. It's absolutely ridiculous. Okay. And then on the way out, just to finish this episode up, I heard two college girls, clearly super liberal, clearly pro-team, Cenk and uh, the Young Turks, coming out and saying... That she thinks that the people who like Shapiro just weren't educated. All right, that will do it for this episode, guys. I apologize. You had three episodes in a row of just me screaming into a microphone. And I have no idea if this episode will even be listenable tomorrow because, oh, God, like I said, 
talking and reading notes and, uh, and remembering all at the same time was exceptionally difficult. And I was trying to recount about five different panels over the course of about seven hours of experience for you. So hopefully it made sense in your brains, even if it wasn't making sense in mine as I was spouting it. So as a reminder, go to iTunes Give us a review. You can be entered into the Liberty Force number one drawing. Please do visit martinarmory.com before our uh, special promotion with them expires again. That is martinarmory.com. Put in Lions and you get a discount code. Follow me on Twitter at Brian McWilliams. Follow at Lions of Liberty. Go join our Facebook forum. You can take part in all sorts of fun discussions with all of us. And guys, the new Electric Liberty Land shirts, we have the design worked out. It's all fixed. So if you ordered a shirt, it's being printed right now. You should get it any day now. If you've not ordered a shirt, visit lionsofliberty.store. We've got some awesome shirts from a man, Dan Smots, over at the System is Down podcast, which I was just on, drinking a martini and discussing the movie Get Out. So check that out, my friends. For me, Brian McWilliams, from Electric Liberty Land, always stay plugged in to Liberty.